a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've reached the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Turns out to be one of the most profound and important chapters in the whole Bible. And the truth is, we could spend a long, long time here digging into this chapter, many, many, many weeks. You remember Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great medical doctor and preacher of the gospel, pastored Westminster Chapel in London, England from 1939 to 1968. Great man of God. He preached an amazing series through the book of Romans, 275 sermons. (laughs) He preached them between 1955 and 1968. He preached to a packed house on Friday nights. Can you imagine that? Friday nights at Westminster Chapel there in London. 
when he got to chapter six, he wound up spending 22 weeks here. He preached 22 sermons from chapter six, each sermon about an hour long, incredibly deep, powerful, profound messages. Now, don't worry, we're not going to compete with Martin Lloyd-Jones here. I'm just trying to say that to say this passage is so important. We've got to spend some time here. We don't need to rush through it. So today, I'm going to introduce these first 11 verses by doing kind of an overview of verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6. And then, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, we'll spend a little bit more time digging a little deeper into this same section. But for today, let's just read these first 11 verses and spend a little time here getting the the understanding of the gist of these first 11 verses. Very powerful. Let's read it. This is God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be New American Standards has done away with, a better translation is probably rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's God's word. Now, of course, just like most other passages in the Bible, in order to understand this passage, it's critically important we understand the context. And we've been in the context now for many, many weeks. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, Paul's been teaching justification through faith, by God's grace alone. He's hit it very, very hard, very powerfully. So in chapter 5, verse 20, he pointed out where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, God realized when he inspired Paul to write those words that there would be some foolish people who would claim that, well, if that's the case, let's just go on sinning so God's grace can abound. Now, that attitude's pretty common. Today, every time we preach the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, apart from any works whatsoever, it's not anything we do, it's just Jesus working in us, granting us faith, granting us repentance, granting us salvation as we trust him. There'll always be somebody there to accuse us of giving people a license to sin. And from time to time, you'll hear people say about us Baptists, well, you Baptists believe you can just ask Jesus into your heart and go out and live for the devil. <laughs> now, hopefully you understand nothing could be further from the truth, but it's a very common accusation, and it shows a great ignorance of God's word. And unfortunately, it's partly based on people who've called themselves Baptists, who are probably not even Christians, 
and they've abused this doctrine of security of the believer to rationalize their continuing to live a life in sin. They said a prayer, and they think, okay, now I can live like I want to. I can live for the devil, and everything's cool. I've got my insurance policy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, that's very, very uh, unbiblical. But that accusation is not new. Paul had to deal with the same accusation. Anybody who preaches salvation by grace through faith alone is going to have to deal with that, that accusation. Paul anticipated it here in his letter to the Romans. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And so in the succeeding verses, he shows how absurd, how ridiculous that kind of thinking is. And in the process of teaching us that, he opens up some really incredible, wonderful truth to us. We need to meditate on this. In order for us to understand these things, we must, we must, we must, first of all and continually, keep our focus on Jesus. Our attention has to be on Jesus. So in these verses, that's what he's doing. He's drawing our attention to the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, he's made it clear we're justified by the death of Christ. He died for our sins. He says that very clearly. Chapter 3, he wrote, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Christ died for us. In verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, Christ died for us. Here in chapter 6, he refers to his death in verse 3, where he speaks of our being baptized into his death. You see it there? We're baptized into his death. And then in verse 4, he speaks of Christ being raised from the dead and our being buried with him. We've been buried with him. In order that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But there's something interesting here. Notice that when we get to verse 10, there's a different thought being expressed. He's using a different preposition. Still talking about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but there's a different thought here. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That means forever, never to die again. Talks about that in verse 9. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Now, let's not miss this. We know Christ died for our sins. We focus on that a lot to pay the penalty for our sins as a substitute for us. He died in our place for our sins. That's basic gospel truth, of course. But in verse 10, he uses a different preposition. It's important. He died to sin. What's he mean by that? He means this. When Jesus, God the Son, left his Father in glory to become a man here on earth, one of us, he came down and entered a world of sin. He entered into a realm of sin. Sin was reigning on this earth. And he voluntarily did that. He voluntarily entered this realm of sin. And of course, when he came in, the Bible teaches us he suffered temptation like we do. But he never once yielded to it, of course. In order to place himself 
under our sin to die for our sin. Sin kills. And when he took our sins on himself, it resulted in his death. He paid the death penalty for our sins. He took our sins on himself. But when he died, he was through with this realm of sin forever. He had come into it. He had submitted himself to it. But his relationship to sin had come to an end. It certainly, obviously, doesn't mean he stopped sinning. You know that. Couldn't mean that because he never started sinning, right? Jesus never, ever sinned. It simply meant he left this realm of sin. He died to the realm of sin. He died to sin. It doesn't have authority over him any longer. He accepted the penalty for our sin, and then he was through with it. So he was buried. That means he really died. You don't bury somebody unless they're really, truly dead. And then on the third day, he rose again. Look at it in the middle of verse 4. Christ was raised from the dead by means of the glorious power of the Father. And that, of course, is the central miracle of the Bible. That's the central miracle of the history of the whole world. And guys, listen, it happens to be a wonderful fact that God has seen fit to make it the most easily verifiable miracle as well. Anyone who's willing to look at the facts, look at the evidence, can see Jesus obviously rose from the dead. There's no other way to explain the facts of history. Lord willing, we'll go into some detail about that when we launch this Wednesday evening Veritas series in a few weeks. I'll let you know when we started up, probably going to be in August, but they have asked me to start teaching on Wednesday evenings beginning on the 14th of this month. That would be not this Wednesday, but the next. And Lord willing, I'm going to be sharing some of the powerful details from Evangelism Explosion there that can help all of us share the gospel more effectively. But eventually, we're going to get into some of this evidence that God gives us for the resurrection and for his existence. It's just pretty powerful stuff. But God raised Jesus up from the dead. And every year, we focus on that really intensely one day. We call it Resurrection Sunday. But listen, guys. It's not really true that we just set aside one day each year to commemorate his resurrection. The truth is we have 52 days a year. We, we come and gather as a congregation to celebrate his resurrection. Every Sunday we celebrate his resurrection. He won the victory over death. That's our message. And our goal ought to be to celebrate his victory over death 365 days a year. We need to be reminding ourselves continually. He conquered death. So I no longer I'm subject to it. I have eternal life in Christ. And that's exactly what his resurrection was. It was an announcement to the universe from God. My son has completed the work of atonement. My son's completed the work of redemption. My son's completed the work of salvation. Death no longer has power over him. He has conquered the last enemy. So in verse 9, he says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, Death no longer is master over him. In John 17, verse 5, just a few hours before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to his Father, And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus knew he was about to die to this realm of sin. Of course, that prayer was answered powerfully. So he had voluntarily entered he voluntarily submitted himself to the realm of sin, but when he died for our sins, he also died to that realm of sin, and he was raised to return to the glory of his Father. In verse 10, when he says, the life that he lives, he lives to God, he's referring to that 
fact. He's re-entered the glory of the Father. He's left the realm of sin. He's entered the realm of God. That's what he's teaching us there. So again, in verse 9, when he says death is no longer master over him, the implication is that for a time, Jesus did submit himself to death. He did it voluntarily. He allowed death, in a sense, temporarily to rule over him, but no longer. Now, being reminded of these fundamental truths about the death and resurrection of our Lord, Paul refers to another fundamental truth, namely this. We need to understand that we are one with Christ. We are identified with him. We are united with and to him. In verse 3, he refers to our being baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, we usually think of water baptism. We see the word baptized in Scripture. But right here, he's not primarily referring to our immersion into water. Where baptized, of course, means to immerse or, or dip or plunge. But he, he's not thinking about being baptized into water. He's thinking primarily and fundamentally of our being baptized into Christ Jesus, placed into Christ Jesus himself. When we repent, when we turn to him in faith, when we receive him, we become united with him, immersed into him, one with him. In verse 5, he uses that word united, very strong word. We become united with him. We become united with him. The word united was used to refer to a plant that had been grafted onto another plant, so they were now one. It's really the same picture Jesus uses in John 15 when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We have to abide in him as one. We in him, he in us. It's the picture Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4 when he refers to Christ as the head and to us as the body. We are in him, he is in us, we are one. And now we come to an extremely important truth that many of us Christians have just not really internalized very well. We may have heard it. Sometimes we hear truths and they just kind of skim over the surface of our minds. We don't internalize them well. But since we are one with Christ, that means that we share in his death and in his resurrection. The point is, since Jesus died to sin... And since we are one with him, we also died to sin. He very powerfully, very forcefully drives home this truth in these verses. Look at them closely here. Verse 2, we who died to sin. Verse 3, we have been baptized or plunged into his death. Verse 4, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 5, we become united with him in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. Verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. I mean, he is driving it home as powerfully as you can drive it home. Now, listen, we must not make this, try to make this mean something it doesn't mean. He's not saying here, you should die to sin. He's not talking about something we ought to do. He's not commanding us here to die to sin. He's announcing a fact. 
when we became one with Christ, in other words, when we became a Christian, we died. A literal death occurred. And we must not dilute those words just because we might not fully understand them. This is past tense, guys. It's completed action. It's something that's happened already, whether we realize it or not. He's not talking about something you did to yourself or something you felt. It just happened. You died. Not your body, of course, but you, yourself, the inner person, died with Christ. The real you, the inner person you once were, died. (laughs) Stay with me here because this gets really, really exciting. Not only did you die, but a new you came to life. An old you died. A new you rose to life. Remember, we're thinking about a part of this meaning and significance of the resurrection of Jesus. So in verse 4, he says, Therefore, we have been buried with him in the likeness of his death, so we too, in other words, just like Jesus, might walk in newness of life. A new person comes to life. Verse 5, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, in the same way, just like Christ has been raised so that death is no longer master over him, Just like Christ lives to God, verse 10, consider yourselves now to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I realize that the future tense he uses in verses 5 and 8 can be a little confusing to some people. They think, well, maybe this is something that's going to happen later. But he's really talking about the here and now. And we know that from the context again. Verses 4 and verse 11 makes it very clear That being alive to God means being alive right now, here and now. Remember, his whole purpose here is to refute those who say, let's just sin all the more. He's saying that's impossible. So the future tense in verses 5 and 8 simply refers to the fact that the new life comes after death with Christ. It's used to emphasize the certainty of being alive to God after dying to sin. So here's what he's saying. Before you became a Christian, you were in Adam. That's the whole point of chapter 5. For example, verse 12. Whereas by one man sin into the world, death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We've looked at that in detail. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So with the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. When we came to know Christ, the old person we once were died. A new you was brought to life. We dwell in the same body, but we're a different person. We are an entirely new person. And that's to be taken very literally. Because the old you was a slave to sin. Verse 17, you were slaves of sin. You were a sinner. You were bound to the sinful nature that works in your body. When you trusted Christ, that old person was put to death. You died, and the new person was raised to life and now lives in your body. 
Now, we need to really focus on this. Let's try to meditate. Let's try to internalize this. We need to grasp this. You and I are not the same people we once were. A Christian, listen, guys, stay with me here. A Christian is not just someone who gets some stuff. We're not just someone who gets forgiveness or gets to go to heaven or gets the Holy Spirit or gets peace and joy. Of course, all those things are true, but there's more to it than that. A Christian is actually someone he was not before. Being born again doesn't just mean something was taken away from us, namely our sins, and something else was added, namely the Holy Spirit. It means we died and we're now someone entirely new. How many times have we Christians assumed and probably said that we're just like everybody else? The only difference is we've been forgiven. And we tell that to people. I'm just like you. I've just been forgiven. And we need to be careful here. I understand the spirit behind that. I know what we're trying to communicate. But a better way to communicate it more accurately would be to say something like this. We were once just like everybody else. We were in the same boat they're in. We didn't deserve God's grace any more than anybody else deserves God's grace. We were worse sinners as far as we can tell than anybody else, if we really are honest. But God very mercifully and very graciously has given us new life. You see, we're really not just like the lost people of this world. We're really not. There's a radical and fundamental difference in us. There are, in fact, two species of mankind. One species is in Adam, the other's in Christ. Christians are not dirty, rotten sinners who sin hundreds of times a day and are enslaved to sin just like everybody else in the world, just forgiven. That's not true. We were once just like everybody else. But according to the Bible, that old man died. That's not who we are anymore. And it's no wonder that many Christians get confused here and maybe can't pray very confidently. They go around talking about what terrible sinners they are, how they're bound to sin, and they, they know that God doesn't hear the prayer of a sinner, and, and, and how on earth could God possibly hear their prayers? But listen, if we're, in, if we're Christians, we're in Christ. You know the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. The old man is dead. Behold, all things have become new. We're a new person. We're a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told we're the righteousness of God. Why? Because we're in Christ Jesus. The old man has died. We're a new person now in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, look at this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God wants us to understand who we are. The old man that we once were was a slave to sin. But in Romans 6, verses 2 and 11, we see we died to sin, just as Christ died to sin. And it means the new you is no longer a slave to sin. The new you is no longer a slave to sin. Do you hear me? The new you is no longer a slave to sin. Sin has no power over us now. We've been set free from the power of sin. 
And we might say, well, then why am I sinning so much? Because this new person still lives in an old body. And these bodies and brains of ours still have sinful tendencies. They still carry around the old habit patterns in some many cases. We're not bound to them, though. But we can be heavily influenced by them. And we can certainly say no to God. We can say yes to sin. Yes, we have the capacity to do that. But it's not necessary. We're not bound. We're not slaves like we once were. We're new creatures. Romans 8.23 points out we're still eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our body. That's not happened yet. Philippians 3.21 says Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's referring to our future glorification. We haven't experienced that yet. It pertains to our bodies. We still wear these bodies. These bodies still have sinful tendencies. But this is critically important. Please don't miss this. We're not bound to that sin anymore. We are free not to sin. We have power to say no. When a Christian sins, there's no excuse because we've died to sin. And in verse 6, when he says that our body of sin might be done away with, in the Greek, a better translation would be rendered powerless. That explains why a Christian doesn't ever need to fear death. The truth is he's already died. The real you can't die again, only this body. That's why Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But it's already passed from death into life. That's why Paul could say to the Philippians in chapter 1, to die, well, that's to gain. That's no more than just laying aside a body that's just been tempting us to sin. Now, what are we to do about all this? Well, look back at Romans chapter 6, verse 11. That's what he says. This is the conclusion. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider, King James says reckon. It doesn't mean act like it. It doesn't mean behave like it. It doesn't mean pretend it or imagine it. It means realize it. Understand that it's true. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You might say, well, I don't feel dead to sin. But God says you did die to sin if you've received Christ. You did die. It's a fact. So God says you need to believe it and you need to confess it. You need to consider it to be true. Realize it's true. Many years ago, before I understood what he's saying here, I used to pray something like this, Lord, I really would like to be able to say with Paul that I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I, I just admired and envied Paul for being able to say it. I believe now that I was praying a prayer of ignorance because the fact of the matter is that I and every other Christian can already say that, not because of the way we behave, but because it's true. What he's saying in verse 6 is our old man was crucified. There it is. The next time we're tempted to sin, we should never say, oh, well, sin's too strong for me. That's just to be expected. I'm just a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. I'm a slave to sin. I'm bound to fall over and over again. Of course, I'm going to fall. I'm so weak. Probably already sinned thousands of times today. Is that really true? When we say things like that, are we confessing the truth? We don't want to be guilty of confessing something that's not true, do we? We've got to realize we are dead to sin. We're alive to God. 
We're not bound to sin. We've been set free. We can say no. And when Satan comes and tempts us to sin, we can say, Satan, don't you realize who you're talking to? I'm not your slave. That old man's died. That old man's dead. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. You're trespassing. Get out of here. Sometimes I'm just afraid we Christians are guilty of confusing lost people. Unintentionally, our intentions are very, very good. Our aim is to communicate humility. But if we communicate that we're no different than they are, we're not communicating the truth. and We're not giving them hope for what God can do in their life. The truth is we are very different from what we once were. We're very different from what other lost people are today. Now, it's also true, I want to underline this, obviously we can't take any credit for that. There's no room for pride here. We say it very humbly. We become a new creature because of what he's done. It's all him. But we really are children of the king. We need to know who we are. I've read that after the Civil War, it's very common for many of the black people who had been slaves all their lives to be full of fear when they saw their old masters again. They were still afraid they might be captured again or maybe sold. Now, the truth is they were free, but many didn't grasp that reality. And many Christians are suffering the same kind of dilemma. So here in Romans chapter 6, God's saying, you need to understand this. You need to understand it well. Because my son died and rose again, in him you also died to sin. Now you're a new creature. You're alive to me in Christ Jesus. Walk with your eyes on me. You're my child. You're free. You shall never, never die. You're no longer a slave of sin. That's the essence of the first 11 verses of Romans 6. So, Father, would you please help us internalize this fabulous truth you're giving us here in this awesome chapter of your word? Lord, Satan would love to steal this truth from your kids. He would love to convince us that we are still slaves. So, Lord, help us to internalize the truth that all of us who are trusting Jesus, all of us who are in Christ, that we've died to an old way of life, that we're raised, we're united with Christ, and we're raised with Him to live in newness of life. So, Lord, help us to internalize it. And when Satan comes knocking at our door, help us to stand clearly and firmly against him in your truth, in your word, and drive him off with your truth, the truth of your word that we're reading here. So, Lord, please help us to know and learn who we are. Help us to stand firmly in that truth. And, and by standing there, by walking in you, making ourselves more available than ever to you for you to work through us to accomplish all that you want to accomplish for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.